January of 2021, energy giant ExxonMobil started a pilot program to test the efficacy of using excess natural gas that would otherwise be released into the atmosphere as an accidental byproduct of oil well pumping to power mobile generators, which would in turn power Bitcoin mining servers on site. Natural gas tends to aggregate in the same underground pockets that contain oil, and is often burnt, which is what causes those gas flares atop many such oil wells, or in some cases it's just allowed to seep into the environment. Since natural gas is mostly methane, that's very not good for the environment. Methane is more than 25 times as potent a greenhouse gas as CO2, and though it's shorter-lived in the atmosphere, it causes a lot more on-the-ground heating compared to other greenhouse gases, and its concentration in the atmosphere has ballooned over the past two centuries as oil exploration has resulted in a lot of these gas pockets being released into the air, and the pumping of natural gas through leaky pipelines has added to that overall atmospheric contribution. The idea here, then, is that since oil wells are producing excess natural gas anyway, and natural gas is an energy source, why not hook up generators at these oil pumping sites so something productive can be done with that gas, rather than just burning it off with no gain, or allowing it to seep into the atmosphere and cause a whole lot of harm. So this concept comes with two theoretical benefits, the first being that when gas is burned, it releases CO2 and water vapor into the air, which isn't ideal, as CO2 is also a greenhouse gas, but it's less bad in many ways than releasing straight-up methane because of that aforementioned warmth-trapping potency. The second is that you can potentially earn some serious money if you use that excess essentially free, after initial infrastructure costs are paid, energy in a prudent way. And the solution they came up with, or rather the solution that was presented to them, which they decided to try out, was to partner with a company called Crusoe Energy Systems, which is focused on tapping these excess natural gas flares at oil wells to power cryptocurrency mining operations. This is a potentially viable business model, because in the U.S. alone, about 1.4 billion cubic feet of natural gas seeps out of these oil wells into the atmosphere or into a flame via oil rigs every single day. And to put that into context, it's estimated that the world consumes about 48 cubic feet of gas per capita, so per person, each day on average, and many of the world's most vital natural gas pipelines, like those running from Russia to Europe, which have been running at diminished capacity of late because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, deliver a little over that, around 1.8 billion cubic feet per month, as opposed to per day. Now, around two-thirds of that 1.4 billion cubic feet of gas flarage is in Texas, which is where the majority of U.S. gas is pumped, with much of the rest seeping from gas wells in North Dakota. Consequently, a lot of Crusoe's efforts are in these two states, though there are test runs in other states and countries run by them and similar companies, like one operating out of East Texas called Giga, as well. This concept only works, again in theory, because of the economics of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. New Bitcoins are minted via a process called mining, 
which essentially involves the solving of massively difficult computational problems, which can only practically be accomplished by throwing huge piles of processing power at them. This is called a proof-of-work protocol. Folks who mine Bitcoin often buy hardware that allows them to do these sorts of computational problems quickly, and their work on these problems keep the Bitcoin network operational, but also give them a chance to earn new Bitcoins through their efforts. All of that computation, though, and to put it in perspective, the folks who do this on a large scale sometimes fill shipping containers with graphics cards wired together into a network and require high-yield sophisticated cooling systems to keep all those components cool enough to keep functioning. All of that computation requires a whole lot of energy. And in some cases, if you're not operating at proper scale, or if you don't have access to cheap electricity, the cost of mining a Bitcoin can add up to more than you earn on the other end. It can cost more than a Bitcoin is worth in electricity costs to generate a Bitcoin, which makes the whole exercise and investment in all those graphics cards and shipping containers a little pointless. When electricity is cheap, though, and or Bitcoin values are high, this can be a relatively easy and consistent way to make money once you have those initial investments made. So Crusoe's bet, and ExxonMobil's bet by partnering with them, is that this abundant energy source, which, after building the requisite infrastructure to capture the gas and convert it into electricity, and to then use that electricity to mine for Bitcoin, is basically free and would otherwise just spill into the atmosphere, that will allow the economies of scale for these mining operations to be favorable, which should then allow them to profitably mine Bitcoin and potentially other proof-of-work crypto assets as well, and to do so more efficiently than other crypto rig operators. And that is important when crypto asset prices drop. Because again, at some point, the cost of operating these rigs and doing these computations are higher than the value of the assets generated, which means you're paying more in costs than you're getting in profit, which is not a sustainable business model. As of the day I'm recording this, Bitcoin has just dropped below the $20,000 mark for the first time in years after hitting a recent peak value of around $69,000, a staggering drop that has paralleled a collapse in other crypto assets and in global markets more broadly. What I'd like to talk about today is an alternative model to the proof-of-work protocol seen in Bitcoin and what it might mean for the larger crypto space when it is deployed on the world's second largest blockchain. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Bloomberg, and it's entitled, Ethereum Mining is Going Away and Miners Are Not Happy. Ethereum is a decentralized blockchain that was founded in early 2014 following the release of a popular white paper by programmer and Bitcoin magazine co-founder Vitalik Buterin. The concept was to build a more modern alternative to Bitcoin's blockchain. A blockchain being, at its core, a publicly viewable and usually permanent ledger of transactions that would allow it to serve as a platform for more varied things, like, for instance, smart contracts and decentralized autonomous organizations, which are kind of like self-operating businesses or ownership entities, often called DAOs, rather than primarily serving as a crypto asset, a cryptocurrency. 
There are a lot of distinctions between Bitcoin and Ethereum, but in terms of minting new coins, mining, to use Bitcoin's parlance, folks can generate Ether, which is the coin perched atop the Ethereum blockchain, by solving complex crypto puzzles and thus, on a practical level, spending gobs of energy to fuel heaps of computational machinery capable of solving those puzzles quickly and efficiently. As of early 2022, a single Ethereum transaction just buying something with an Ether online uses as much energy as an average U.S. household uses over the course of a week, and the whole Ethereum network uses about 112 terawatt-hours of electrical energy, which gives it a carbon footprint of about 53 megatons of CO2, which is roughly equivalent to Singapore's power consumption, and a carbon footprint just shy of Greece and just a little above Libya but far exceeding those of Norway, Switzerland, and Ireland. So the cost of both generating more ether, of mining on the Ethereum network, and of conducting transactions on that network are pretty massive and consume many times the resources of comparable offerings. A single transaction on the Ethereum network has a carbon footprint equivalent to 140,893 Visa transactions and is roughly equivalent to watching 10,595 hours of YouTube as of 2021. In addition to that relative late-arrival opportunity to build on what's been learned from other blockchains, though, Ethereum has also been iterating relatively quickly and at a regular cadence, which has allowed it to remain fairly secure and speedy compared to other offerings, and has made it the blockchain of choice for many derivative projects, ranging from DAOs to games to companies building out smart contract offerings. In 2020, though, the zero phase called Beacon Chain within the industry of a new paradigm for Ethereum was launched. The goal was to test out the veracity of a proof-of-stake rather than proof-of-work model for Ethereum as part of a larger effort to speed up the protocol while also dropping its carbon footprint and the energy usage for generating new Ether to something close to zero. The next step, which is currently, as of the day I'm recording this, expected to occur sometime in August or September 2022, is called the merge and will involve the merging of the Beacon blockchain with the main Ethereum blockchain, while at the same time shifting the main chain's consensus mechanism, which is currently based on that aforementioned proof-of-work protocol that requires all those computers and all that energy to operate, to a proof-of-stake protocol, which is what the Beacon uses. The third and final stage of this transition is the shard chain phase, which will involve spreading the Ethereum network out into 64 different blockchains, which should, it's hoped anyway, dramatically speed things up and allow for a lot more overall utility across more potential use cases. That's expected to happen sometime in 2023, and once implemented, will mark the beginning of a fully realized Ethereum 2.0. The proof of stake protocol that Ethereum will be shifting to during that second phase, the merge, is distinct from the energy-hungry proof-of-work protocol in several important ways. First and foremost is that rather than relying on brute computational power to verify transactions and to consequently divvy out new coins, proof-of-stake requires that validators possess a certain quantity of coins or tokens to participate in this process. The system then generally randomly distributes new coins amongst those with the requisite stake in that crypto asset. 
So one model rewards people who can leverage massive amounts of computing power, while the other rewards people who can invest, potentially quite heavily, in the crypto asset. The downside of the latter is that it could encourage more centralization, power in fewer hands, which is counter to the philosophical underpinnings of many such assets. There's evidence that many crypto assets, including Bitcoin, are actually in relatively few hands already and therefore fairly centralized. But the stated purpose of many crypto projects is to decentralize commerce and finance as much as possible. So the fact that folks need to buy a bunch of coins to participate in this process means that thus far, there are far fewer proof-of-stake chains in existence, and the ones that do exist tend to be smaller than their proof-of-work kin. The downside of the former, on the other hand, is that in order to participate in the mining process, you generally need to invest in big, expensive computer rigs that gobble up massive amounts of energy in addition to typically being expensive. So while the hurdle for one is virtual, the hurdle for the other has more real-world consequences. And a 2021 study by the University of London found that proof-of-work protocols like the one used by Bitcoin, even in situations that are favorable to such protocols and even somewhat biased toward their attributes, use something like 1,000 times as much energy as even the most energy-hungry proof-of-stake protocol. So there are pros and cons to both of these approaches, and that's true of their consumption, but also the security risks they each face, and the speed at which their protocols allow them to function. But because of the larger context circumstances of the world right now, namely that nearly every government is scrambling to reduce energy use and its carbon footprint to meet sustainability commitments in the relatively near future, that's made the proof-of-stake option more and more appealing each year and Ethereum's decision to pivot in that direction will likely tilt the playing field even further, especially if the transition is relatively pain-free. Some of the pushback against this pivot is coming from diehard crypto enthusiasts who have invested in the current paradigm and who essentially don't like that this change will make their very expensive computer equipment, and in some cases, shipping containers full of graphics cards and servers, basically worthless for the purposes of mining some crypto assets. Now, they can shift their mining operations pretty easily, moving from Ethereum to Bitcoin, which still uses proof of work and which, therefore, still requires those types of real-world assets if you want to be competitive and profitable. But the writing is on the wall here that the whole industry could move in this direction over the next decade, especially as regulations begin to infringe on cryptos so far relatively unregulated territory. There's a good chance that alongside all the other legal requirements governments are beginning to deploy, some of these entities will be required to go green, and that could nudge them toward a similar pivot to the one that Ethereum is making now. And in early 2022, the vice chair of the European Securities and Markets Authority said that the EU should ban the proof-of-work model entirely in favor of the proof-of-stake model because of its energy-sipping attributes. So this is something that's beginning to happen today, not a purely theoretical, maybe someday, concern. Companies like Crusoe, then, which have invested themselves entirely in the concept of finding cheap energy and plugging computers into those resources to mine Bitcoin, may find themselves with gobs of infrastructure that could potentially be broken apart and sold bit by bit at a loss, and maybe recalibrated for some other use case for at least a few more years but they probably won't enjoy the same investment and runway and takeoff trajectory as they would if the industry stayed more or less as it is currently. 
That said, because many of the people most heavily invested in these spaces are also those holding a lot of these assets, and they therefore tend to have a lot of money to throw at politicians who may become or have the ability to influence future regulators, there's a chance these complaints could escalate into serious, tangible hurdles for these sorts of transitions. They could hold things back because they are able to hold things back. There's also a chance that the transition phases within Ethereum will themselves be pushed back, as they have been in previous years, due to implementation issues. This is a fundamental shift in how a very large and popular blockchain operates, and especially in the midst of all the flubs and outright scams the crypto world has seen over the past handful of years, everyone involved is a bit on edge, so they need to pull off what amounts to brain surgery on this platform without causing any damage or panic in the process which is a big ask and unlikely to occur, at least perfectly, because of the complexity of the issue. Those who have participated in the testing of the separate chain using the new protocol have recently said that it's working perfectly, but the merging process will be a different beast of a different scale. So even without that pushback from influential, wealthy enthusiasts, operating in various capacities within this space, running rigs themselves or investing in people who are, there's a chance that the raw difficulty of what they're attempting will change the timeline dramatically, which in turn could scare off other would-be transitioners, other blockchains and crypto assets that want to change to proof-of-stake as well, slowing down or stopping the move from one protocol to the other, thus keeping the current paradigm in operation for the foreseeable future. Ethereum, like Bitcoin and most other crypto assets, has plummeted in value in recent months, dropping from more than $4,800 per coin in late 2021 down to a little over $3,500 in May and just over $1,000 per coin as of the day I'm recording this. That raises the specter of another possibility, that crypto coins and NFTs and DAOs and everything related to this space will go through a crypto winter period, during which everything slows down and becomes more introverted for a while, the technologies evolving and new options emerging, eventually, into a new springtime, at which point entirely new variants of everything we know about this space currently, including the existing protocols, may emerge. We may also see a more significant downturn, following harsh criticisms by regulators and increasingly folks from within the industry itself about how this space has become overwhelmed and supersaturated by rug pulls and Ponzi schemes and how maybe it just needs to die to make room for other, better, more productive and beneficial work based on the same general concepts and technologies. Under that potentiality, we may see a lot more blockchain deaths or the zombification of broad swaths of this industry, with some people grabbing what they can and leaving, and others just continuing to putter along, all but dead. The dropped prices and lack of mainstream enthusiasm following this crash, souring folks on the concepts and theories underpinning the industry, and making the conversation about transitioning and greenifying the world of crypto more or less moot. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Curious Economics of Luxury Fashion, Millennials, Influencers, and a Pandemic by Don Thompson. 
There are elements of this book that are a bit timely in the sense that they refer to trends and changes that are most relevant over the past couple of years during this pandemic era and will thus likely not be super relevant maybe two or three years down the line. But the overall look at what luxury fashion at couture and how that influences things like the ready-to-wear fashion industry will probably remain relevant for quite a bit longer. And to me, somebody who knows just a bit about that industry and how the different pieces interlock and influence each other, it was pretty eye-opening and interesting. And in many ways, the world of luxury fashion seems to operate in the same way as celebrity and influence and even fine art. The economics are quite different from the economics of the on-the-ground, off-the-rack type of clothing industries that more of us are probably familiar with and have a good intuitive sense about. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Curious Economics of Luxury Fashion by Don Thompson. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of all of my projects, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.